0: I'm creative business coach, Anastasia Williams, and you are listening to Making Magic, a podcast for fiber artists, makers, and creatives who are looking to craft a business with intention. Welcome to the first installment of the Community Project Series. As you know, it is June, and therefore it is Mindset Month, and Essentially, how this functions is that I have a community project and that community project involves bringing together 17 fiber business owners from across all the different arms of the industry and asking them to share their experiences, their stories, and their learning moments around mindset challenges that they have faced in their businesses and in their lives as well, because those things are invariably interlinked. So today I'm going to speak with one of those fiber business owners who has contributed to the email series, which if you want to go sign up for that, you just go to anastasiacreates.co slash community project, and that will be there. And I think it will be there forever. So if you want to be involved in the email series, you can go ahead and sign up there. I know we've already kind of gotten underway with those emails, but there is an archive. So no matter when you join throughout the month of June, you can still have access to all of the stories and the learning moments and the emails. And then of course we've got some podcasts. So today's fiber business owner is Lauren Rad from A Bee in the Bonnet. So she is a lawyer turned knitwear designer. And there's some really big mindset shifts with that when you think about what those two things represent (laughs) and how they can look so far apart in so many ways. Um, But we're gonna kind of talk about her story a little bit more, and it's gonna pair really well with the email that went out today from her. So without further ado, let's jump in. Let's start with, what do you do? How did you get here? Tell me your journey.
1: Boy, that's a twisty turny road there. Um, I guess let's go back to the beginning, which is that I started crocheting as a small child um, and my mom was always sewing and my grandma always sewed. So there were fiber arts swirling around in the atmosphere all the time, Um, but I didn't really get serious about any of them until my first semester of law school. Um, And the way law school grades are structured in most schools, even still, is that you go the entire semester, you don't have any homework, there's no quizzes, there's no tests, and then your entire grade depends on your grade on your final exam at the end of the semester. Um, yeah, so I was I was not handling that stress well. It was November of my first semester of law school and I was um, a little overwhelmed. And I was at an event with some classmates at some point um, And I said something along the lines of, gosh, I wish I could knit. It would be so great for stress relief. And my friend Kara, who sat next to me in crim law, looked at me and said, well, I can teach you to knit. And I said, really? She said, yeah, my grandma taught me. It's not that hard. Let's go. There's a yarn shop just off campus. We'll go sometime next week. So we picked an evening. We met up. She took me to my first local yarn shop. I bought three balls of Rowan Big Wool and some US size 19 needles uh, and knit my first scarf for my then boyfriend, now husband. It was the ugliest thing in the world. Um, I didn't realize that, for example, you're supposed to weave in your ends when you add a new ball. So I just tied the strings together and then snipped the ends. And <laughs> there's like little tufts sticking out. Um, he still has it. He swears he loves it. Um, my skills have significantly improved since then. And I've, I've been knitting ever since. So I knit all through law school. Um, I had a a knitting group that I met with other law students, and we would meet every week in the student center. There was a fireplace and we'd all get our coffee and pull out our yarn and stitch for a while. I knit all through the bar exam. I knit all through my eight years of practice. And now I'm still knitting, even though I'm no longer lawyering. That's where I am. (laughs) The knitting stuck longer than the law did.
0: (laughs) Okay. So how long? Okay. So what did, what would, what did you do after lawyering?
1: So I transitioned to teaching high school part-time. Um, so I guess I haven't completely abandoned the law. I teach law to high schoolers. Oh. So I have, I have two classes. First period is sort of how the U.S. court system is structured, um, how criminal law works, how criminal investigation and adjudication works, and then what basic um, legal practice environments look like and legal ethics. And then the second year is basically all of civil law and civil litigation and legal writing. So we cram a whole ton of stuff into one year. It's a very, not just 30,000 foot overview, but more like, Satellite level overview, Um, but it's enough to get them familiar with concepts so that when they come into contact with these things in their adult life, they can at least say, oh, I remember this concept. Um, I know where to go find more information about it so that I am not overwhelmed and confused by it. So Mm -hmm. I love it. It's a ton of fun. Um, And that helps keep that part of my brain satisfied. Mm. And then I I have the knitting to keep the other part of my brain satisfied.
0: Mm, Yeah. And it's good that you're teaching high school students what's going to happen when they get arrested. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) honestly, I love, I love teaching high schoolers. Um, They're at that really sweet spot developmentally where they are old enough that they can have really hard conversations about complicated topics, but they're not so old that their ideas about the world have calcified Mm -hmm. so they're still they're still making up their mind about how they think the world should work they're still engaging with the world around them with a lot of curiosity Um, and they're really open to exploring ideas and looking at them from different angles and taking them apart and putting them back together so it's Mm -hmm. a lot of fun I love it
0: that's cool so okay so a couple of non-knitting related questions well kind of sort of so one do they know that you knit they do. And in fact,
1: there's a running joke um, in my criminal law class, I use a lot of hypotheticals in order to illustrate concepts. And so whenever I need to illustrate a crime, it is generally involving Misrad's international yarn smuggling ring, where I am sneaking in large amounts of Mongolian cashmere yarn without paying import duties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay.
1: Okay. And have <laughs> any of
0: them tried to ever find you on Instagram? Um,
1: some of them I believe have. Um, but I, if, if they do, I don't know about it and I don't interact with them. Right. Um, I try as much as possible to try to keep those two areas separate in large part, because I am very concerned about making sure that I don't interact on social media with my students. Yeah. And I just, I feel like that's a, that's a
0: boundary that I need to maintain. Right. Right. So. yeah. And, uh, I feel like unless they're really into yarn, they may not find your account very interesting. <laughs> Yes. I
1: would agree with that. There's not much going on there unless you really care about knitting or gardening or like old things in general.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So when, at what point did it go from knitting to designing? I actually can pinpoint that
1: to the day for you. I don't remember the exact date, but I was on a conference call Um, I was, I was still practicing law full time. Um, It must've been, it was sometime in probably August of 2017. And my, my kid was very small. um, And I just, I had this, this idea for a scarf in my head that I couldn't get out of my head, that I had never seen anybody else do. And I knew that I needed it. Um, And so I pulled out one of my yellow legal pads, put myself on mute and sketched out this scarf design. Um, And it, turned into one of my very first patterns, um, which is stylistically kind of outside of what I do now. My focus really now is on, you know, patterns that are complicated enough to be interested, but not so complicated that you have to look at the chart, every few stitches. Mm -hmm. Um, and that first pattern was significantly more complicated than what I do now. It's a cabled scarf with cabled diamonds. And some of the, some of the diamonds are bigger than others and all the diamonds are infilled with lattice work. Um, and then there's a ton of seed stitch on the outside, and it's beautiful, but it's very complicated. Um, but that was that was the first design, and that was the moment when I went, I I I have these ideas, I need to get them out of my head. I might as well share them with other people too.
0: Right. Okay. So when you went into it, did you ever really kind of imagine that it would become a business for you? Yes and no. Um, I thought about it as
1: something that I could explore and see if it could become a business. Um, but I both overestimated and underestimated what I would need to do in order to start making it successful. Mm. Um, so when I first designing, for example, I never heard of test knitters or tech editing. Um, I didn't realize that there were sizing standards. So all I had was a set of patterns that I had worked on previously that I could kind of look at for a guidance for how people explain certain concepts and everything else I sort of figured out on my own based on like my own hand measurements Mm. um so it was it was very rough at the beginning um and so I I didn't know what I didn't know I thought I could just put a pattern up on Ravelry and people would go oh that's cute I would like to make that because that's often what I did when I saw a new pattern (laughs) turn up is I'd go oh I want to make that um, and I didn't, I didn't quite understand how significant the traffic, pat, uh, the pattern traffic on Ravelry is. Mm. Um, so, I, I had this idea that maybe I could turn it into a business. Um, I didn't realize how much of that business would actually be
0: marketing my work as opposed to making knitting designs. Mm, okay. And I think that this actually is going to be a great segue into <laughs> mindset things. So, all right. So let's talk about that. I mean, like what, you know, what goes through your head when you kind of have this thought that like, Oh, you know what? I think I could do this. And then you start realizing, okay, I don't know if I can, like, what are some of those challenges that you run into? Yeah. So this is kind of a weird thing for me
1: um, because it, it relates to how I learned to knit too, um, which is that I pick up a few skills and I feel like I suddenly know a lot. Um, it's, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where you pick up a few things and you feel like you're an expert and then you really dive into it and you suddenly think you, are, you no longer know anything. Um, except that for certain things, for whatever reason, I never go through that pit of despair. I just keep thinking oh hey I know a lot I know a lot hey I learn even more Um, and so that's that's how it was with with learning knitting Um, and then as an extension that's how that's how I felt about designing Um, with the very limited exception of feeling extremely insecure about designing garments because they are so complicated. um, i've always just been in the position of okay I want to try designing that next Um, let's learn a little bit about how it's shaped and constructed and then let's try it out and see how it goes because if it doesn't go well, the worst that happened is that I spent some time knitting. Shucks. Bummer. Yeah. Um, and if it does go well, then I've got a new new design I can use. Mm. So I think yeah. that's, that's an important mindset thing, right? Is to not think about it as wasted time when you're learning new things. Mm. Um, because it may not work out the way you wanted it to work out, but you have still learned something and you've still had fun doing it.
0: Yeah. So it's nice. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, that's the case with a lot of things too, is just that even if it comes to marketing, right? Like, if like we talk about the fact that the majority of what you're doing is marketing. Then if you try to launch something or you market something and it flops or, you know, then you start to look at, then you can start to piece it apart. Okay. So this part worked, this didn't work. Let's try this a little bit differently for next time. Everything's information, right? Everything's right. information. Right. Um, so when you, when you learned that for the most part, it was going to have to be about marketing. Now, what are some of those possible challenges that you've dealt with? Because, well, I mean, like to market yourself doesn't always feel supernatural to a lot of So what was it like for you?
1: Yeah. Um, I am definitely not still not in the place where I can say. I'm a fantastic designer and you should buy my designs because they're awesome. Um, I would love to be in that place someday, uh, but that is, that is not the headspace I'm in. Um, And so that is, that is a significant challenge. Um, But what I do do is I think about, okay, um, what are the features of my designs that I enjoy? Um, And because I know that I'm not that unique, there are going to be other people out there who enjoy the same things. Um, And I can highlight those things. And so then it becomes not so much selling myself and selling how great I am of a designer. It's look at this thing in this design that I had fun with, and I think you might have fun with too. Mm-hmm. Um, so shifting that focus away from myself and toward the design has helped a lot. Even though, I guess if you looked at it in a certain perspective, the design is in some ways an extension of me. Um, but I, I do try to maintain a, a boundary between me and my designs. We are Ooh. we are separate things. So my designs are not me. They're not some um you know deep personal expression of myself they're not some intimate glimpse into me personally and I know for some people that's different for some people their designs are really personal and really intimate um and that can be it can be a lot harder to separate um in that in that context but for me my designs are um you know I think this is pretty and I like making it and if you think it's pretty and like making it too cool let's be friends and if you don't think it's pretty that's awesome you're not rejecting me by not liking my designs. Mm. Okay. So. There's actually
0: you've brought up like six different mindset issues just, <laughs> just there, just there. So yes. okay. So the first one if we talk about I just want to okay. And you can at any point be like, "All right, listen, like we're not going this deep into my like psyche. Please don't psychoanalyze me." Fine. Okay. I'll deal with that. But when you say I'm not at the point yet where I feel like I can just say look at how great of a designer I am by my stuff. Like, what do you think? Cause you're not the only person who experiences this, right? Like we see this all the time. So what do you think are some of the drivers of that? And that can be either within yourself and society. It doesn't matter however you want to take it. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I haven't ever really stopped to think about it. Um, I- <laughs> there you go. There's your homework. You
1: can stop. Yeah. It. Great. Thanks. I wasn't expecting to get homework from this. <laughs>
0: Love giving um, you know, me I mean, I,
1: I can, I can posit a couple ideas off the cuff. One is which that generally um, women are not socialized to promote themselves as being the best at whatever they do. <laughs> um, and there is very much this idea that if you talk about yourself as being really awesome at what you do, people think of you as a braggart and not as being a competent professional. Right. Um, there's the idea that um, if you have to toot your own horn, it's probably out of tune um
0: oh yeah
1: yeah so so there was definitely there was a lot of that that I grew up with for for everybody not just women but that was very much the mentality in my family was that you don't brag about yourself um and so that's definitely probably part of it um probably part of it is also that because I am almost entirely self-taught um and I have an unfortunate hangover from the legal profession which is that I really like credentials um part of me still feels like oh you know i'm a bit of an upstart uh you know i i i don't actually know as much as people with professional experience in this field who have specialized training and have actually taken proper pattern grading courses at university and have studied textile and understand microns and so there's some of that there i'm sure
0: okay okay yeah i think all those things are valid obviously because yeah you're right you know we brag and it's negative. Men brag, it's just confidence. Mm -hmm. Like, come -hmm. on, man. There's a lot of that.
1: (laughs) The neat thing about having made friends with lots of other people with yarn businesses is that I don't feel that same compunction about bragging about my friend's work. And so Mm. when we can team up and brag about how each other are so great, then we get to the same end result without feeling personally awkward about it.
0: Right. Right. And I think that this actually bleeds really well into the second one that I wanted to talk about, which is kind of that, you know, um, you know, I'm, I made this, but I'm shifting the focus away from like myself. Right. And I think that that's, that's how a lot of people, number one, I think it's a, like a healthy boundary line, which is another thing I want to talk about in a second. But I think that a lot of people get into this. I want to talk about myself or don't want to talk about myself because I don't want to be perceived this way. So how can I take this Thing that I have that I want to sell and separate it from me so that it's packaged as not me but a thing, right? Yeah. And I think that what you were saying, I would go a little further on what you were saying of that. You know, it's not so much that you're promoting yourself; you're promoting the design and focusing on the design. But the words that you were using, sorry, this is Coach Anastasia coming out. Um, but the the words that you were using, like. Um, you know, I think you might like it too. It's actually has nothing to do with the design necessarily. It's that this is something that you made for, I mean, yes, in a way for yourself, but you also made it for others, right? Like, mm-hmm. so really, you're, it's like, um, I don't think servitude's the right word, but it's like service. Yes, it is service. Yeah, like, it is service. Doing this, you're doing this for the joy of others as much as yourself.
1: Yeah. And that is very much a motivating philosophy behind my design work. Um, I don't design just because it's something that I like and want to do. I do it because I also think that other people might enjoy it too. Right. Um, and if they were designs that were truly just for me that I didn't think anybody else would like, I probably wouldn't go to all of the effort of writing them up and having them tech edited and tested and published. Cause that's a lot of work for something yeah. that you don't think anybody else is going to care about. Right. Um And so, you know, for me, going back to sort of my knitting origin story, knitting has always been a place of stress release. Um, It's been a place of comfort. It's been a place of safety. And I know that that is true for a lot of other people too, which is part of why I also aim for that sweet spot in my designs of just interesting enough, not too interesting Mm. um, because it helps facilitate that sort of Netflixing, stress relief, meditative knitting mindset. Um, And so it's, it it is very much I think about it as a way to be of service to other people as well as doing something that I enjoy myself.
0: Mm -hmm. And I would say, for you specifically, like the other part of you that seems very much in this, in this element of, you know, um, well, I know we're saying service but I would say kind of like bringing joy, right? Like, or putting, putting another, it doesn't necessarily have to be joy. Basically. I want to talk about the aesthetic of your Instagram, right? (laughs) Basically, I want to talk about your aesthetic because there is, there is something that is so like you taught our photography class in Mm -hmm. the fiber business collective, which everybody loves. And it is one of the most watched workshops that we have because I I think that like everyone worries about it, right? We worry that you know, our photography has to be the super perfect and it has to be super professional looking. And sometimes we have to spend lots of money to do it. And you just were able to come in and be like, listen, I'm gonna dispel all the fears and show you how this is accessible. And mm-hmm. like, here are some tips and tricks using your own examples, which is helpful because I mean, number one, I can see it. I can see the big shifts in, in some of our members' photography too. Like oh, it's fun, been, I love it. Yes. It's been really cool. Um, but <clears throat> Also, like the way that you build that aesthetic is is part of your brand, right? What I would say is part of your brand. But the biggest thing about brand is that branding is emotional, right? So there's emotion, sorry, I'm really big on psychoanalyzing you tonight am I but like there's a lot of like emotion within just the way that you style. And so maybe it's not so much a mindset question here, but like, what is it what is it that you want people to feel when you see like that like very how do we describe it I mean romantic yeah very romantic aesthetic it
1: is very romantic um and that is definitely intentional um and if when you meet me in person you will see that like my everyday wardrobe is not actually that soft and romantic I wear a lot of black and a lot of Olive green, and I. Is that the lawyer in you? No, that's been me since I was fourteen. I wore I wore a navy blue sheath dress to my eighth grade dance. Um, That's just always been me. I like I like clean lines. I like dark colors. That's my personal wardrobe. But I really enjoy um, playing with softness and playing with um, pastels, and it's very much about exploring a place where it it is safe to be soft and to be vulnerable and to feel safe while doing that. Um, And so that has definitely come out more and more in my photography over the last few years. Um, And I I don't think it's coincidental that things really ramped up as COVID hit. Mm. Um, So I I definitely had that soft romantic style before, but I cranked it up to 11 in 2020.
0: why not lean in right yes exactly
1: exactly and I I I was really craving that comfort that safety that welcome um and I wanted other people to have a place where they could feel that too and so I figured forgive the language but everything out there is shit yep um and I don't want people to feel that when they come to my page too I want them to have a place where it is where it is safe Mm -hmm. and quiet and welcoming and where they can feel like They are having the social media version of a good friend, sitting them down with a cup of tea and just giving them space to just relax. Um, And so that that really does motivate a lot of my photography decisions, a lot of the props that I choose, the colors that I choose for my patterns. Um, You'll notice that I I don't tend to design in a lot of strong colors. Mm -hmm. I don't tend to design in variegated yarns very often. Um, And that's because I really do want things to feel gentle and soothing.
0: And calm. Yeah. Is there, <laughs> I keep it. I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. Is there, no, this is fun. <laughs> is there, <laughs> is there a part of your life where you feel like you need that too? I know you said that knitting is kind oh. of like a calmness, but like, absolutely. Yeah. Is there, absolutely. Is, is there like this distress kind of take over sometimes, I guess.
1: Yes. Um, it was significantly worse when I was lawyering. Um, things got very bad at certain periods when I was lawyering. Um and I I really needed somewhere to escape to. Mm. Um, it was to the point where like I was riding with fountain pens and listening to the Jane Eyre soundtrack and pretending that I was in a cottage out on the moors while I was working on discovery responses because I was so miserable.
0: <laughs> I love that soundtrack though. <laughs>
1: it's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um and so like, like, definitely I have always, since I was a little child, um, when I feel stressed or, or anxious about the world or overwhelmed, I escape into pretty little things. Um, and so that is definitely, that has been a, a lifetime coping mechanism.
0: Mm, sure. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So, okay. Now, like we see how some of the things that like you've experienced in the past have kind of started to bring themselves to fruition within the business itself or within like what you do. So how about the way that you do it? Right. So meaning that like, what are some of the, actually, you know what, I'm going to reel back just a second. I want to ask one more thing that's kind of, kind of in line with this a little bit, but when we talked about having that boundary between like yourself and your product, essentially yourself and your designs. So do you feel, have you ever felt like being a designer and it is part of your identity. Like, do you identify in that? Does, does this make sense?
1: Like, sometimes it does make sense. Okay, and, and I, I see where you're going. And the answer is no. Okay, um, it's not part of my identity. My being a knitter is part of my identity. Uh-huh. Um, but being a designer is not. Okay. Um, designing is what I do. Knitting is part of who I am. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and and it, I can't perfectly articulate that distinction but there is definitely a distinction there. Um, Mm -hmm. and part of that is because I didn't have those healthy boundaries in my previous profession. Uh. Um, and being a lawyer really became a significant part of my identity and made it extremely difficult to leave even when it was time to leave. Mm. And when all of the, these signs and signals were screaming, you need to do something else. And I couldn't, I couldn't walk away from it. Um, and I actually, I spent a good chunk of time in therapy with a very good therapist who specialized in working with anxious overachievers. <laughs> <laughs> I know what a specialty, right? Um, and she really helped me walk through a lot of that and and disentangle myself from my profession. Um, and so I, I really moving forward, wanted to try and keep that separation in place there. So but if at some point I no longer enjoy the design work or it's not bringing in enough income to make up for all the time I pour into it, or if I find just for whatever reason, something about it is not working for me, like I can walk away from it, mm. um, which, which is something that, that I really needed going forward into
0: whatever this next professional stage of my life is going to be. Mm, sure. So are there, are there any like, I uh, think I mean, obviously you were in therapy for probably a while and yes. obviously like you're not the therapist, but like, are there any little like tips or things that, or th- things that she made you think about that, that started to kind of, um, define that boundary or was Thinking it just a several lot of-
1: years now? And I'm, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember anything in particular, like any particular exercises she had me do Mm, um there was just there was a lot of thinking there was a lot of journaling there was a lot of going on walks by myself and talking to myself inside my head um and kind of working through all of the crap that had built up over those years
0: yeah Yeah. well I mean that's that's a that's an important thing too just having that time having time with yourself by yourself alone no phone you know like that's really hard it's really hard so hard I don't like it so hard (laughs) I dislike it. I struggle um, with it too. But yeah, I mean, I understand that. Yeah. Therapy is, is multi-level, multi-layered. It's not fair for me to be like, Hey, multiple years ago, will you tell me a strategy <laughs> that you're a therapist? <laughs> um, but obviously like, it does seem like you have good boundaries. And I think, um, I don't, I don't have good boundaries with mine at all. I think, mm-hmm. uh, that's something that I've been working on figuring out for myself. Like, it's hard. it's It is it's really, really hard. hard. And like, I love this and what I do. And it, it fulfills a lot of the things within me that I'm passionate about, but also that affirm me. So it's like, if this goes away, Mm -hmm. I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, at some point I recognize this, right? Like I'm cognizant of it. So at some point I'll get through it, but I'm not afraid to say that
1: knowing it's there is the first step, right? Exactly.
0: As, As is everything. Um, okay. So now that I've breezed through that section, um, Now, okay, so what other things, what other things have kind of cropped up for you over the years that are like, all right, this is something that I really needed to tackle and like move, not necessarily past. I don't think it's fair to say we move past mindset things. I think it's just like, we move with them.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. Here's a big one. Um, Because of a whole confluence of of factors. When I left practicing law, um, I was really not in a good mental place um, and had essentially reached the conclusion that I was not actually that smart. Um, I had done well on my LSAT cause I had a lucky test day. I couldn't actually do very much. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot that I could contribute to the world. I was just kind of this, just this sad sack of a person. Um, and obviously that's not true, but those were the conclusions that I had reached about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really took, it took about a year to decompress from all of that. Um, and during that first year, that was when I was kind of releasing my first designs And you can kind of see in those early designs that I I didn't really know who I was and what I wanted to do with my design work yet. They're kind of all over the place. Um, And you can start seeing some thematic elements crop up within kind of the year after that. But that first year in 2018, it's kind of all over the place. Um, And I wasn't wasn't on any sort of a design schedule and I, I didn't have any sort of philosophy about my designs. I was just like, I think I'll make a cabled something this time. Or I think I want to play with an overall pattern this time. Um, and so you could see that, that I was trying to figure out who I was through those designs. That's
0: kind That's of cool, amazing. actually.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I didn't realize that that was what was going on until I went back and looked at them a couple years ago. Last winter, actually, I pulled out some early designs and some later designs, and I went, oh, I can see themes cropping up. Um, and the themes become stronger in the later designs, but they're there in the early designs. I just I, I didn't quite know what I was doing yet. Yeah, um, and so the the process of learning to design also helped me regain some self-confidence um and discover that actually i I could learn to do things that I thought were hard. I could solve puzzles. Mm. I could do math. <laughs> um, I could write complicated things in a way that was usable and accessible by other people, which still feels like magic, by the way, like when somebody takes one of my patterns and creates their own version of the thing that was living inside my head, like I feel like a witch who's written a spell book. It's incredible. (laughs) I love it. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a little bit of a rush every time I I get a little high off of that. (laughs) Um, So that, that was a a big mindset issue that I really had to work through was this idea that I am actually smart and capable and can do this work and can do many other things too. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had to give myself space to learn to do that. Um, and part of doing that was also getting comfortable with the idea of failure. Ooh. Um, yeah. (laughs) So I am a recovering perfectionist. Um, my lovely therapist used the phrase maladaptive perfectionism to describe what I did, which is basically not that I was a perfectionist because I was so committed to excellence, but because I was so afraid of disappointing people and being judged and being unloved if I weren't perfect. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I think that's, I think that's a feeling that a lot of people have. Um, and so Learning to design patterns is a process that is necessarily full of mistakes, especially when you don't know what a tech editor is, (laughs) you're going to make mistakes. Um, And my earlier patterns are chaos. I'm actually in this year going through the process of updating a lot of my old patterns with my new pattern writing skills that I've built over the last several years um, and grading them out to different sizes and and improving the pattern writing and whatnot. Um, but giving myself permission to make those mistakes and to make those mistakes publicly and to realize that, you know what, if somebody emails me that they found an error in my pattern, it's not the end of the world. They don't hate my guts. Everyone's been really friendly about it. Um, I apologize. I fix the mistake right away. I send them a code for a free pattern as a thanks for helping me catch the problem with my pattern. um, And I move forward and giving myself that space to, to make those mistakes and to recover from them um, has been really healing. Yeah,
0: I can imagine. Yeah. And I, I wonder what it is about us, because it's so common that when we have these fears of rejection, they get so dramatic, right? they really like, do. Like that, oh, you know, everyone's going to hate me. No one's ever going to want to buy from me again. My husband's not going to love me anymore. My kid's mm-hmm. going to reject me. Like you can get so specific of like,
1: So here's something particularly toxic about my former profession. Um, There are people who like to take mistakes from publicly filed briefs and post them on Twitter and make fun of them or use them as illustration examples of what you shouldn't do in legal writing. Mm. Um, And so in my prior profession, there was actually some validation of that worry that if I were imperfect, somebody was going to make fun of me for it. Oh. um, which is not healthy. There's a lot of toxic nonsense in the legal profession that I think lawyers need to deal with. Um, yeah, cause that's, that's not a good way to teach. Yeah. It's not a good way to teach. It's not a good way to build your own platform. It's not a good way to support your peers. Like it's just, it's not healthy. Yeah. Um, I don't like it. In fact, I've, I have blocked those people on Twitter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's it sad. feels good to block them. Well, of course, because like, that's the only, that's the only thing we can do, right? We only have control over our own actions and that's the only action right. we are allowed to take. Right. But I yeah. mean, like, you know, even if people do make fun of us and we unfortunately do see this in our industry and it is very upsetting to me when I do see it,
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: like, I think it's really challenging, you know, if you are in that position where you are somebody who's being teased or made fun of, it's like. I don't know. It takes you it. I don't know. It really, really bothers me to look at it, but I just don't like how it makes us feel like we aren't worth being loved. Right. That's like, that's the big message behind that is that if I'm making fun of you and you know it, and I don't care about your feelings, like Oh, but the other thing is, is that what we don't realize so much of the time is that it has nothing to do with us. Oh, it's one hundred percent
1: because the person doing the mocking feels like something is missing in their own life. Right. Right. Or, or they, they are, they are missing something personally. Right. Um, it's, it's completely to do with the, the person making the negative comments. Um, I saw somebody, some Instagram influencer earlier today, was doing an Ask Me Anything. And someone asked her, they were like, do you ever get mean comments? What do you do with those? And that was basically her response was, yeah, I get them. Um, I generally don't interact with them. Sometimes if they're bad enough, I block them. But I remind myself that they have nothing to do with me and everything to do with the person making them because happy, well-adjusted people don't feel the need to go around picking on others.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of
1: this
0: is very bothersome. I don't like that the internet gets like that anyway, Mm -hmm. but in general, that's kind of what we see. And I think I think that does because the internet has gotten worse. I think we see more people who do want to be on social media get really nervous about what they're gonna put out there. like, yes, is somebody gonna call me out? Is somebody going to disagree? Is somebody going to be super mean? Is somebody going to quote unquote cancel me? Um, and I think that it's uh, it's just too bad because it doesn't give anybody like if you don't, even if even if it gets bad, right? like it doesn't give you a chance to grow in any way to not ever be willing to risk it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: And I I do think that there is, you know, there there has to be a distinction between like people making fun of someone for small mistakes and people rightly raising concerns about like a designer who refuses to be size inclusive um, and is really snotty about it when they're called out on it. Right. Um, And in that case, like, a dog pile may not be the most effective thing, but I'm not going to get too worried about it. Right. Um, but I, I do think that for, you know, things like um, a designer didn't know what a tech editor was uh, and they they weren't trying to take advantage of anybody and they weren't trying to lower the professional standards of the design industry. They just, they're new and did not know about a tech editor. Right. Um, so, you know, hanging them out to dry f- is not going to, f- make them feel any better and it's not going to help solve the problem. It's just gonna smush them.
0: Yeah, oh, we don't want to smush each other. That's terrible. Oh anyway. Well I feel like I've kind of picked on you for quite a while and like, hey, tell me about all of your personal issues. I don't um, mind. <laughs> I have a tendency to overshare anyway. Well I do feel like you are pretty excuse me if you can hear the toddler. He's banging on the door. Love it. I'll You'll be out be in a from bath time in a few minutes. God, and there's the dog howlings. Okay, okay. <laughs> Child needs to move away from the door. I'll be out in a couple of minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Been a day. Okay, so <laughs> if people want to find you and see your beautiful aesthetic and see your designs, where can they do that online?
1: So I'm on Instagram at a bee in the bonnet. Um, That's probably the place that you'll find me hanging out and chatting the most. I'm also on my own website at thebeandthebonnet.com. That's where you'll find my blog posts as well, which range from helpful technical tips and tricks to me just waxing lyrical about how much I like knitting socks. So come for the come for the tech tips, stay for the pictures of my rose garden. Um, those are probably the two most likely places you're
0: going to find me. All so. right, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and. Talking about your feelings. (laughs) It's been a pleasure, truly. This has been fun. If nothing else, I really hope that all of these stories allow you to understand that you are not the only one that deals with these things. They're so common. They're so prevalent, especially in those of us who are, well, not men. And uh, it just is kind of baffling that we continue to have to perpetuate these things in our own head without being able to break loose from them. And I know again, like what we've talked about is is not necessarily breaking loose from them, but more so learning to work with them and in spite of them. So again, if you haven't already signed up, please come over and do so at my website, www.anastasiacreates.co slash community project. Doesn't matter when this month you want to sign up, but we would love to have you join us. And every day that we have an email that goes out from a fiber business owner, we will then be jumping over to my Instagram account, and I am at AnastasiaCreates.co, and we're going to continue the conversation there with a few prompts and questions that you can think about and reflect on that relate back to the email that was sent out. So again, come on over, sign up, chat with us, and let's tackle mindset challenges together.